Everybody doing okay? Gorgeous day, isn't it? Wow, let's go. Few and far between here during our West Michigan winter times. So we have a 24-7 prayer starting next Sunday. And it's almost filled up. So if you're really excited to sign up for your hour slot, I'd almost encourage you to do it right now uh, because it's filling up very fast. And our theme this time is dust and ashes. Uh, why dust and ashes? Uh, first of all, because in the middle of this, our, our Wednesday night prayer and worship night is Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday is an important day on the church calendar. calendar. Uh, it commemorates the 40 days leading up to Good Friday. And the reason why it's called Ash Wednesday is because of this dust, dust and ashes. The way people repented in the ancient world was through dust and ashes. You didn't just say, God, I'm, I'm sorry, and I turn from this, and I turn back to you. But you, you felt it. You lived in it. You covered your head with, with, with dust, and you put ashes all over your face. And so... These 40 days then, uh, for the church, historically, is a time for us uh, to do spring cleaning, to get the junk out of our lives, and, and to turn from things, and to seek God with all of our heart. And there are two uh, characters in the Bible that actually say about themselves as they're talking and praying to God, I am nothing more than dust and ashes. The one is Abraham, and the other is Job. Powerful. In fact, uh, Abram, we'll get to this story. It's when he's pleading on behalf of <laughs> wicked Sodom. It's like he's standing before the judge of the universe and he's going into God's courtroom as a defense attorney and he's making his plea t to God, the judge, uh, to, to spare Sodom. And that's what it means to be a priest. And we are a kingdom of priests. Our job is to stand before the judge of the universe, even on behalf of places like Sodom, the Sodoms of our world, and the broken and lost parts of our, our world, to stand before this God. And one of, one of the things Abraham does as he approaches the judge is he says, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. Would you hear my prayer? So that's uh, next week. Now let's uh, get into Genesis. I have to say, I got one hour of sleep last night. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> my daughter came home from college and she was telling me about The Chosen. And I'm looking at my clock and I'm like, okay, it starts at 8.30. I can still get there. And it, it had three, 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 a start and then two intermissions. <laughs> I drank three tall soda waters, soda waters. I'm thinking, oh, I'm all healthy, only to find out that they're filled with caffeine. <laughs> so I was just like, mmm, all night long. Uh, <laughs> let's go. Are we ready? <laughs> okay, so if you were here last week, what an incredible text uh, we looked at, Genesis 15, where God binds his heart to Abram, literally binds his heart, and not just Abram, but to Abram's family and Abram's people forever, 
And it's to that ancient covenant-making ceremony. In fact, I was thinking about this. The only covenant-making ceremony that we still have in our world is marriage. It's when husband and wife walk down an aisle. They bind their hearts to, to each other. And same in this world, except the aisle wasn't walking, you know, between a set of chairs, a row of chairs. It was literally, the aisle was blood. It was uh, blood from animals. And the reason why they walk in blood is because deals in that word, world were cut. They were literally cut in blood. And when you were making a covenant, you were saying, if I'm not faithful uh, to, to do what I'm committing myself to do, to be faithful to you, uh, may I be cut to pieces like these animals. And I just think it's stunning that the God of the universe would do this. That he put his feet in that blood, in our world, in our hurt, in our brokenness, in our cancer. And even more, when it's Abram's turn to walk through and put his feet in the blood, God doesn't let him do it. God walks in Abram's place to say, Abram, you're going to blow it, your family's going to blow it, and all that failure is going to be on me. I'm going to be cut to pieces for you. To think that we have that in Genesis 15 at the beginning of the story, boy, it sure makes a lot of sense of Good Friday. Anyway, uh, it's not ironic that the next story, Genesis, Genesis 16, is one of failure, Abram's failure. So let's turn there right now. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Now Sarai, I may call her Sarah too, Abram's wife had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar, so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong. I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows that she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Abraham said to her, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarah mistreated Hagar so that she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, who are you? What are you doing here? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress, and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall call him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards his brothers. Let me just say a thing 
about that text I just read, verse 12. This is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied texts in the Bible. Um, I'm not going to deal with geopolitics today, but we'll do a podcast on this if you're interested. So Hagar gave the name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me, and that is why the well was called Bear Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is God's word. You can be seated. So you read this story, and it's, it's quite a mess. Abram's a mess. Sarah is a mess. Uh, their mess spills into their household, making it a mess. And this is life east of Eden. We are a very long way from the garden. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been looking at Abram, but today I want to look a little bit more at Sarai. I want to get in her shoes a little bit. And the first thing I want to just highlight is that in Genesis 12, when God says, Lech Lecha to Abraham, get up and, and leave your family and your comfort and life as you know it and start walking, that call was also to Sarai. And Sarah also had to, to leave her home and her family. And then they finally get to the, the land, and before they can even get settled, there's famine, so they have to move to Egypt. And here, Abram just panics, and he ends up pimping Sarah to Pharaoh to protect himself. And this probably left huge scars on, on Sarah's heart. Now they return to the land, and our text begins with these words, Sarai bore Abram no children. Now, to be barren in our day is, is incredibly painful. In the ancient world, a person's capital was not money or stock portfolios and big pensions. It was actually children. Your net worth was how many children you had. And that's, that's just how uh, they, they valued uh, riches. Riches uh, was... was how many did you have? Because many children gave you a great name and, and gave you great legacy. And so with, with children being this important, it became a woman's significance uh, to have children. Her, her significance, her worth was all tied to her ability to bear children. So it was everything to a woman. It was her role. It was her capital. It was her life. Now God comes with these promises that aren't just even for Abram and Sarah, but through their family are going to reach all the families in the earth. And it's centered on the idea that they're going to have a family that is as great as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And it's so basic what all this is contingent upon. Sarah must be able to produce a son. And here she is, over 70 years old, trusting God to do the impossible. She waits and she waits for 10 whole years. She waits for this miracle to happen. 
And the longer this goes, you just know the battle that's going on in her mind. Am I crazy for believing this? I'm 80 years old. But she does believe it. And because she does believe it, now she's also probably starting to think thoughts like, wow, I'm the problem here. I'm the one that's screwing this whole thing up. God picked the wrong woman. I'm letting everyone down. I'm letting my husband down. I'm letting God down. In fact, I'm letting the whole world down. So it's not hard to see that Sarah is in a place of hopelessness and despair. So she gets practical. I've been married to a woman for over 30 years. And let me tell you, when a wife gets practical, uh, things start to happen. Uh, (laughs) She comes up with a proposal that she brings to Abram that I want us to know right now might look like, whoa. Uh, But in this world, this is culturally acceptable. Uh, Polygamy is is something that's practiced. Um, And and Hagar is is more than Sarah's maid. Uh, Hagar belongs to Sarai. So anything that belongs then uh, to Hagar is actually owned by Sarah, That's why Sarah says in verse 2 that I can actually build my family through Hagar. And that's what she's thinking. So here's her proposal. Husband, Abram, sleep with my maid. To which the Bible says Abram agrees. Okay. (laughs) I mean, every every, uh, husband right now is like, huh? What's going on here? Uh, But we read here, and and the plan works, at least on the surface. Hagar gets pregnant. But what ensues is chaos, utter chaos. There's more hurt. There's greater sin. There's greater failure. This thing becomes a huge mess. Who's responsible for this mess? Well, to various degrees, they all are. But the one most responsible is Abram. In fact, Abram's failure here mirrors Adam's failure in the garden that produced this mess in the first place. With Adam, it's two trees, one good, the other forbidden. With Abram, it's two women, one good, the other forbidden. In fact, in verse 2, when it says that Abram agrees, it literally reads, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, just like Adam listened to the voice of Eve And again, this is not implying that husbands should never listen to the voice of their wives. I mean, are you kidding me? Uh, Wives are Edzard Kenedgos. They're superheroes. Um, But what this is applying is that before Abram was a man who listened to God, the voice of God. And he's left that, and now he's just listening to the voice of Sarai, and he eats the forbidden fruit. I want us to see that this temptation that is actually presented to Abram is not so much sexual, at least at this part in the story, uh, this is about the promises that God has made to him. How are these amazing promises going to come to fruition? Promises to bless and save, redeem, resurrect, and not just Abram and Abram's family, but the whole world. And this whole thing feels stuck, it feels dead in the water, like nothing is happening, and so for Abram, Hagar and, and, and Sarah represent these two paths that he can walk. Two ways for him to live in this world. Two 
ways for him to be in relationship with God. And the question now is, which path will Abraham walk? And if you read uh, Galatians 4, because Paul makes use of this very story to show us that, that Hagar and Sarah, they stand as these two pictures or these two metaphors. Hera is the picture of when I trust myself, when I trust what I do, what I perform, what I offer to God and give to God. That's the way of Hagar. Sarai, on the other hand, is the picture of trusting God, of trusting who God is and what God does and the miracle of, of the grace that he promises us. This is what's before Abram. Two women, Hagar, Sarah. In fact, these two women, I think, represent the options that we face every moment of every single day. Will I trust God right now? Or will I trust myself? Will I rescue myself? Will I make myself whole through my efforts, through my performance? Or will I actually rely on God? Will I trust God to do what God has promised? And I think like Abram, we're all tempted to take matters in our own hands. We're just so instinctive to, to make this all about us and our effort and, and what we can do, especially in those times of waiting when it seems like God isn't there or that God doesn't care or that God is way out there. And then we start to play this little game. We start to play the game that, that if I do enough for God, if I perform well enough for God, that God will then have to accept me. He'll have to bless me, love me, wash me. And this is the way of Hagar. And this is why Paul says in, in Galatians 4 that, that when you go the Hagar way, um, it will always turn you into a slave. You'll be a slave to yourself. You'll be a slave to religion because this is what religion is. Religion is, is something that's all about me. It's all about what I do and how well I perform and what I give to God and offer to him. And I don't know if you know this, but the gospel is the antithesis to religion. The gospel is the righteousness of God from first to last, says Paul. It's essentially God saying do you see my son? Do you see him? Do you see his work? Do you see his performance? Do you see how he actually lived the life that you were supposed to live and how he actually, in your place, died the death that you deserve to die? That's the gospel. The gospel is God saying to us, this isn't what you offer to me. This is about the free gift that I offer to you. Just trust me. Trust him. Let Christ be your righteousness. This reminded me of a great thing that John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote many other things too, but he wrote this in his journal. Um, he said, one day I was walking through a field and suddenly this verdict fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And then he writes, for the first time, I saw with my heart Jesus Christ at God's right hand, and there was my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could never say of me that he lacks righteousness, for it was always right before him in Christ. 
And moreover, I saw that my feeling good about myself could not make my righteousness better, nor feeling bad about myself could make my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ. And then he writes, at that moment, my chains fell off. I was set free from all my guilt and fears. My temptations also fled away, and I went home rejoicing because of the grace and love of God and Jesus Christ. Is Jesus your righteousness? See, this is why so many upstanding and godly people still can go the way of Hagar. Where it's all about me. It's, it, it's all about what I do for God. It's all about how good I am and what I offer to God. And it's done in a way where it's almost to leverage God. God, now that I have done all of this, now you owe me. I deserve it. Your blessing. The things that I want from you. But see, God through the gospel says to us, rest, child. Rest. Rest. He said that to me a lot last night. <laughs> and I say that tongue-in-cheek, but honestly, I was having a wrestling match with God about the very things we're talking about. And over and over again, I just had to just apply just the gospel uh, to, to this thing, to just rest. It's not about you, Rod. It's about me. Trust me. Seek me. Just throw your life into me. And so for us, Hagar and Sarah are two ways to live. But for Abram in our story, they're actually two real people. And Abram makes his choice. He eats the forbidden fruit. He goes the way of Hagar. He trusts himself. He trusts his plan. He trusts his performance instead of God's promise. And you know, you might think, what's the big deal here? Like, is this really that big of a deal? Listen, whenever we choose to go our way, whenever we insist about this being about me, uh, where, where I am using God to serve my ends, it will always lead to a mess. Look at the mess. Abram's choice leaves Sarah wounded, Hagar's wounded, and probably the one who gets the least attention today is probably the most wounded. It's little Ishmael. I mean, it doesn't take a psychologist to figure this one out. I mean, all Ishmael will hear his whole life from everyone is you're just second fiddle and you're inferior and you're a mistake. I mean, even to this day, Christians say about Ishmael and the descendants of Ishmael that they're nothing but a mistake. Are you kidding? God doesn't make mistakes. In verse 5, uh, I think Sarah's quite right then to go to her husband and say, you know what, this is your fault. <laughs> and here we see that, that Abram's soft, he's passive, and, and, and we see how one sin just leads to another because then you look at verse 6 and he says to her, honey, you know, she's your property, do with, do with her whatever you want. And so Sarah does. Sarah takes all her hurt out on, 
on Hagar, she's, she's literally awful to Hagar. In fact, the word mistreat there is the same word in Hebrew for what the Egyptians did to the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. She's getting hit. She's getting beaten. And, and Abraham then is, is, is not the only one here to blame for this mess. In fact, they are all to blame uh, Sarai, I, we see how she's just filled with this intense jealousy. Uh, Hagar in verse 4, now that she's pregnant, she instantly becomes proud and she despises Sarai. And now we could spend a lot of time talking about pride and jealousy, but there's actually a deeper thing going on here. For Hagar, now that she gets pregnant, Tables have completely turned, especially in her culture. This pregnancy causes Hagar, this slave, all of a sudden have a fast track to success, to the top, where she now feels superior to Sarah. All of a sudden, she has instant worth. She has instant significance. She's feeling all puffed up and proud. She despises Sarah, thinking that Sarah is just some loser now. And Sarah, her name means princess. And just think about the call of God in her life. It's to be the princess of God's people. And yet Hagar's pregnancy literally destroys this princess, Sarah. She's poisoned with jealousy and feeling so inferior to Hagar. And now the princess feels like a nobody and the slave now feels like a somebody. And that's what's going on here. And this is where I ask, why, why is Hagar all puffed up and feeling superior and Sarai feeling all depressed and inferior over a simple pregnancy? And the answer to this is pretty simple. They're both letting their culture define them. They're both buying into what their culture says. This is what qualifies as a real woman. And it's about your ability to bear children. And this is something that Hagar can achieve. And her culture says this is what makes someone a somebody. And Sarai, the princess, can't live up to that cultural standard. And this is why she gets angry, jealous, blows up, starts hitting people. And you see, when we start making the culture our authority and then measure ourselves according to our cultural standards, uh, that's where all these emotions come from. Pride, jealousy, anger, arrogance, feeling superior, feeling inferior. I know what some of us are thinking right now. Thank goodness that we don't live in a backward culture where a woman's worth is producing children. I mean, isn't it so great that our culture today says, women, you can be whatever you want. You can play whatever role you want. You're liberated. You're free to marry anyone you want. You're free to become anything you want. Really, is that the way it is? You know, every culture has its definitions of barrenness. And so today, a woman might think that she is liberated, but just take marriage and that day, all marriages were arranged. Well, today, uh, a woman can say, well, I can marry anyone I want to marry. But can you? 
See, every lady knows it's not this easy. There's rules to this game. You can only marry someone that you are able to attract. And then when you stop and think about the cultural standards of our day, I don't have to tell you how likable and beautiful and popular and successful a woman has to be because every culture has its standards of barrenness. In my opinion, our standards have never been more oppressive to women. I'm speaking as a father of a daughter and all the social media out there that just pumps these standards at, at, at our daughters every single day. And here we sit in this age of women's liberation, yet today women are chained to some of the most ridiculous standards and roles just so that they can be a somebody by our cultural standards. And I don't care who you are. I, I don't care how young or old you are. If you're a man, if you're a woman, if you do not get the gospel in the center of your soul, you will be a slave to your culture. And what's the gospel? It's Paul and Galatians describing Christ and all that we have in Christ so that Paul can then quote Isaiah 64, which says, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Rejoice, sing of joy, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. And you know what Paul's saying here? He's saying children do not have to be your life when Christ is your life. Desolate woman, if you have Christ, you have so much more in Christ. You have everything, everything for your worth, everything for your significance. If you're single right now, you don't need a husband to complete you. Christ completes you. If you're married, you don't need your husband to make you happy. You don't need to have children to be worth something. Christ is your worth. And ladies, you don't need to measure up to our cultural standards of beauty or its standards of success or desirability. You are beautiful in Christ. He looks at you and he says to you, you're stunningly beautiful and amazing to me. And men, for us, we've also been told that unless we have that or become that or achieve that, that we're barren. Stuff screened at us every moment of every day in a thousand ways. That to be a somebody by our cultural standards, you need to do this, you need to look like this, you need to possess this, you need to make it to this place. Yeah, we have our definitions of barrenness and whatever that thing is that gets its claws in us that we think, oh, that thing will make me feel worth something or significant, that thing quickly becomes our God, our salvation, and we are chained to that thing. And I want us to see this morning just how subversive the gospel is. It's subversive to every cult culture because it smashes every idol that our culture places before us. Idols that tell us that 
We need to look a certain way or achieve certain things or possess certain things just to be a somebody. And the gospel is the power of God that comes into our lives. It's the power of God that literally frees us from our culture. Do you want to be free? Our culture day is so oppressive. It makes everybody feel barren and bankrupt. Don't you want to be free of that? Don't you want to be free from being on this roller coaster of one day you're Sarah and the next day you're Hagar. One day you're feeling superior to a bunch of people and then the next day you're feeling inferior. Don't you want to be free of the pride and the arrogance or the insecurity, and the shame. This is how we're free. By fixing our eyes on Christ and saying, there's my righteousness. Christ is my life. Christ is my name. Christ is my identity. Christ is my joy and satisfaction. Christ is my worth and and meaning. It doesn't come from from a husband or children or grandchildren. It doesn't come from a career or a ministry or accomplishing something or a degree or a title or an appearance or beauty. It is Christ. It's our heart being able to say, Jesus, you are my life. Jesus, you are my all in all. Jesus, you are my everything. Can your heart say that today? Because if you can... You can be at rest, free. Now, each character in this story, I think, shows us the mess that we're in. And it shows us that the mess and the chaos isn't out there in our world. It's not in circumstances. I mean, how nice would it be for Abram that once he walks all the way to promised land, that all the mess of his life and world would be left behind him, And that his life in promised land would be this wonderfully perfect life. But it isn't. Because the chaos of Genesis 3 still lurks within this great man and this great woman of faith. And that mess is in them. Just like the mess is in us. And when I come to this, this is why I'm glad for what the Bible is or what it isn't. I'm I'm glad that the Bible isn't this book about all these wonderful moral examples, these upstanding good people showing us how we are to live a virtuous life because you come to the Bible and you see even the best that the Bible has to offer, Abram and Sarah, David and Moses, Peter and Paul, they all fail miserably. And see, as tempting as it is today to just divide the world into the good people and the bad people and then live our lives trying to prove that we're one of the good people and that we belong to the good people who are against all the bad people, God shows us over and over again through his word that he does not break the world down this way, Uh, good people and bad people, insiders and outsiders. According to God, there are only lost people, and found people. And this book that he gave us is just relentlessly about God and showing us his faithfulness 
to pursue lost people. I mean, that's Hagar. Hagar, of all the characters in our story, she's the least, she's a slave, she's an outsider. At this point, she's outside the promises of God. Her life is such a mess. She's alone, she's beaten up, she's running away. She's in this place of utter despair and hopelessness in a desert. And she's found. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. That one verse is the message of the whole Bible. And let me ask, is Hagar found because she's so good? Is she found because she's seeking God? Is she found because she has such a good prayer life? No, we don't find God. God finds us. We, we don't climb our way up to God. God climbs his way to us. And look at verse 11. At the end, it says, God has heard of your misery. This is what the angel of the Lord says to Hagar. This is why she is found. God, his heart, it bursts for the Hagars of the world. It explodes with love and compassion for lost people. He Here's the cries of the oppressed. He hears the cries of the least. His heart is always, always, always drawn to need. And in this place of misery, God finds her. You just look at how God comes to her. It says the angel of the Lord appears. And then in verse 10, Hagar, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have descendants that are too numerous to count. In fact, Ishmael will have 12 sons, just like Jacob later will have 12 sons. And again, this is the capital of their world. And it's the same blessing that God gives to Abram. And look how God comes to her. The angel of the Lord... Who is this? It's Christ. <laughs> and, and, and because in verse 13, she actually names this angel God. And she's the first character in the Bible to actually give God a specific name. You are God El Roy. You are the God who sees. You are the God who sees me. And look at what the angel of the Lord tells her in verse 9. Go back. Submit. Go my way, Hagar. You have to submit to me by submitting to Sarah. Boy, that's not culturally popular today, is it? To submit. But be free of culture. 
Because there are so many times when, when God is going to ask us to do things and to go places and to endure situations that are difficult, sometimes incredibly difficult. And here's why Hagar can obey. She doesn't argue with this. She doesn't put up a fight with God. She just simply obeys. And the reason why she obeys is because she has experienced God's grace. And I love how she puts it when she says, I have now seen the one who sees me. Uh, this is how it most literally reads. It says, I have seen the one and yet I still see. In other words, you have to hear what she's saying. She's saying, God sees me and I see him and yet my life is spared. This is going to be just like Jacob later in the story when, when he also encounters God and he says, I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. That's the grace of God. God's grace is simply this, that I can draw near to a holy, holy, holy God and not die. That a holy God can wrap a sinner like me in his arms and I don't perish. And see, for our life to be transformed, we have to see both God's holiness and his love. I have to see a God who's so holy, who I have no business approaching, but a God as great as that who still lets me in. He draws me close. And see, with this kind of God, I can live with any circumstance without fear, anxiety, or worry because I know a God as great as that who loves me like that. See, Hagar grasps the gospel. She sees the Holy One who sees her, and yet her life is spared. And if you have seen God, and you know that God loves you, in spite of you, if you've seen the Holy One, you can face anything. Have you been found? Have you been found? And I understand that this text shows one side of the coin that we don't find God, but God finds us. There is another side to that coin. Jesus said, seek me, seek me, and you will find me. God says, when you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you. God, may this gathering be filled with people who would become like Hagar, who would humble themselves to you, submit themselves to you, who would seek you, God, that we would seek you with all of our heart. God, put your Holy Spirit in us to do that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.